You know, throughout history, there's always been so much confusion about who Jesus was, is, and was going to be. The Jews, they thought before Jesus came that Jesus was going to be the king that was going to come in the line of David, in the way of David, born into the royal family to sit upon the throne of David, in the castle of David, and sit there forever. And that made a lot of sense. It's what it looked like would happen. Of course, we know that Jesus was born in a stable and didn't look much like a king when he came. In the day that Jesus was to be born, they were expecting that it would be a political revolutionary, born in the line of David, of course, but a political revolutionary, nonetheless, someone that would, would, be, would, would come up and would overthrow the Roman oppression and reestablish uh, uh, Israel as the preeminent superpower, political superpower, of the day. And even as Jesus ascended in his popularity, you, re, you can remember throughout the Gospels, they kept waiting for Jesus to become and to, to become the king and to, to be this great military leader or political leader. And he never was those things. Since the time of Jesus, there have been crusades done in his name, military crusades done in his name. Empires and kingdoms and nations have come and gone that were all believed to be established in Jesus' name and accomplished in Jesus' name and done in Jesus' name. But they came and went. And so we know that none of those things were done in Jesus' name or because of Jesus. The complicated and confusing thing about Jesus was that when Jesus came, that Jesus came not simply establishing a political entity, a political empire, but that Jesus came establishing a church in the midst of Rome. A multi-ethnic, diverse church, international church right in the middle of Rome. And so that's confusing and that's difficult. Even now for us in the 21st century, it's confusing and it's difficult for us because we're left in this already not yet tension for us because what we've come to realize is that we are as the people of God, as the, as the children of Christ, we are now uh, uh, citizens of heaven, but residents of earth. We're citizens of heaven but residents of 21st century America. And what we have as we read our Bibles and perhaps increasingly so, is we find those things in conflict, don't we? We find those things in conflict. And so as we live out this residency on earth as citizens of heaven, we live out in all of these tensions, how do we live out as effective residents of earth, but faithful citizens of heaven. And what are we to do? What are we to do when we find our government doing things or our president doing things or our Congress doing things or our tax dollars perhaps going to things that we know that our king would not approve of? 
And so as, as residents of earth or residents of America, yet citizens of heaven, we find ourselves in all of these ethical dilemmas and all of these quandaries here in the 21st century that are not new to us. They're not new to us. They're not new to the 21st century. In fact, we're gonna sit right in the middle of Matthew chapter 22. If you'll go ahead and turn with me there, we're gonna go jump, jump right back into Matthew. We're gonna find ourselves in Matthew chapter 22. <coughs> and we're gonna see Jesus asked that very question. We're gonna see Jesus give, give a principle this morning that talks about how as citizens of heaven, yet residents of earth can begin navigating this question. And we're gonna, we're gonna see, this is a principle that in the New Testament is actually, uh, is actually uh, used and given great detail. We're not gonna give a great deal of detail this morning. We'll wait until we get into those passages in the future. Um, but it's, it's something that, that the apostles gave a lot of attention to as they kind of lived out this tension. But this is, uh, this is the situation of taxes. I kind of wish we'd have gotten to this like before April 15th, but that didn't, Providence didn't have, have it that way, all right? So if you're, with, at, at, if you're there with me in Matthew chapter 22, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? <coughs> Matthew chapter 22. By the way, if you would pray with us, John this morning is at home and he is very, very ill. Um, he has a stomach virus this morning. And uh, as you know, today is the dodgeball tournament, um, and, which is one of his biggest events of the year. So uh, he is, but he came home, came down. We're still having the dodgeball tournament. So if you guys are, uh, are a part of that, we're gonna, that, that thing's gonna carry on. We're gonna, we're gonna tag in. That's why we have a team of elders here and great leadership team, youth ministry, all that. But if you guys would pray for John, he's discouraged and at home, um, but he, he is there. All right, Matthew chapter 22, we're gonna begin in verse 15 together. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Now, remember where we are in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, we are on Tuesday of Passion Week. That means that we are literally the Tuesday before Jesus is going to be executed on Friday. Now, if you're thinking like me, now I don't know why my brain works this week. If, if I'm Jesus, I'm looking back at them and I'm thinking, I'm gonna die in a few days. I don't really wanna talk about taxes right now, right? But you know the, 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 the saying, right? There's two things that are certain, death and taxes. We see that lived out in Jesus's ministry right here. He's gonna have to deal with two things this week, death and taxes, right? And so this is the Tuesday before, before he's gonna die on Friday. And we, we've had conflict at this point in Jesus's ministry. Jesus has come in on Sunday to the cries of the crowd, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
but uh, like, a, like an earthquake that has swept across Judea, he is, his fame is not all good, not all positive. He has gone into the temple. He has flipped over the tables. He has upset the temple leaders. He has upset the Pharisees. And they know that this is a problem that is going to have to be dealt with. They have, he has brought condemnation down upon them. He has taught in three successive parables. <coughs> Please forgive me. <coughs> three successive parables, turning their consciences in on themselves. He's cursed the fig tree, showing that that is a, that is a symbol of the death within the temple, that they are, they are not fruitful. They give the image of bearing fruit when they themselves are actually a dead tree. And so he has is, he is brought in their judgment, but the problem that they have is that the crowd likes him and they don't wanna turn the crowd in on themselves. And so they kinda of have a PR situation. They want to kill Jesus, they want to arrest Jesus, but the crowd likes Jesus. And so what we're going to be seeing over the next few weeks is that the temple leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they're gonna go on this smear campaign against Jesus. They're gonna be presenting Jesus and trying to put him and all of these ethical dilemmas and kind of backing him in all of these corners and trying to kind of pin him down so that they can kind of turn the crowd against Jesus so that they can arrest him and so that they can ultimately crucify Jesus. And that's what we step into the middle of, of this morning. Now, I want you to see and notice how it is that they approach Jesus. First, I want you to notice who they send to Jesus, who they send to Jesus. They send to Jesus, not their top scholars. Do you notice that? They don't go to Jesus themselves. They send to Jesus their students. They send to Jesus their disciples. It's not the Herodians and the Pharisees themselves. It is the disciples of the Pharisees. It is the students of the Herodians. Now, then why would they do that? It, it's because who would be more likely to, turn, to change over or to be won over to the teachings of Jesus, right? It would be the students. They change their minds all the time, right? Like, like if you ever sit down with a college student, they, they're, they're going back and forth, right? You sit down with a, with, with a teenager, like one day they think this and one day they think that, right? Like they're, they're, they're easy to change of their opinion, that, that whole being blown to and fro by the wind. And so they, they send their students to Jesus because Jesus by this time is pretty clear where the Pharisees stand on the whole opinion of Jesus, right? It's, it's pretty clear where the Herodians stand on Jesus. But their students, perhaps they genuinely could be won over to his position. It would also make more sense where they would ask a genuine question of a teacher. It would make sense where they would ask a genuine question of a religious teacher or a rabbi like Jesus. And so they, they go to Jesus and it makes sense that they might be asking a goodwill question right? I also want you to notice that they go under the guise of, of, being, of being admirers of Jesus. Do you see how they go? They go and they're just gushing about Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you are a man of such wonderful integrity. Oh, Jesus, you don't let anybody sway your opinion of, you, of, of, 
of, you don't let anybody's opinion of you sway what you say. You, you, don't, you don't let the crowd tell you what to teach. You don't, you don't let the, the crowd determine your sermon. You're, you're not trying to please men. You only want to please God. You only want to say the truth. You only teach what is right. You don't worry about this crowd or that crowd. Now, why would they do that? First of all, it camouflages their attack. Remember, they're wanting to win over the crowd, right? So if they go in with these questions, and these questions are obviously for the purpose of pinning Jesus down, well, I don't know about y'all, but when I see somebody asking questions that way, it doesn't change my opinion of the person being asked the question, it changes my, my opinion of the interrogator, right? I, I don't really start thinking, well, man, I, I really want to know that question too. It starts making me think, oh, look at that guy. Look at that guy, right? Like, isn't that how you think, right? Like, even, you, you stop even paying attention to how the guy asks the question. You start thinking, well, listen to this guy, you know, like, who does, he th- who does he get off thinking he is, right? But they go in with flattery. They go in as apparent admirers, as, as people of the crowd. And so it makes it look like that these are not people that are malicious, people that are hostile to Jesus. It's a brilliant approach. The crowd is not going to think that this is somebody that is against Jesus, but somebody that is for Jesus, genuinely wanting some Jesus's wisdom, genuinely wanting Jesus's uh, expert and profound advice. The other thing is, is that it puts Jesus on the spot. It puts Jesus on the spot. Jesus can't go with the standard PR diplomatic no comment here, right? Jesus can't go, no comment. You know, I'm just going to back out of this one. Why? Because if he does that, then it's going to sound like he's trying to please the crowd. And what, did, what was the com- compliment they just gave to Jesus? You don't ever try to please the crowd. You just say the answer. You always just give the truth. You always just say what the answer is and you don't care about man's opinion. You don't worry about PR answers. You don't ever worry about being diplomatic or tactful. You just say the truth. You just say what needs to be said. And so they're, put, they're creating a pressure point, a bottleneck that is under the guise of being a compliment that create, puts Jesus on the spot and makes him answer it. It's a brilliant and bold tactical move by sending the students in there under the guise of being admirers of Jesus. Now, I want you to realize that this is a perfectly crafted question in a perfectly crafted room. It's a perfectly crafted question in a perfectly crafted room. Let's look at the question first. Let's look at the question first. He comes in and they ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax? This is a poll tax that was owed to Caesar. This is different than the tax we looked at in Matthew 17, which was the temple tax. This is the poll tax that is paid to Caesar. Now, the law that they're talking about is not the law of Rome, obviously. It is, it, is not a, a, it is not unlawful to pay to the Roman law to pay the Roman tax. This is talking about the law of Moses. This is talking about God's law. Does it break God's law for us to pay Caesar's tax? So why would it be unlawful? Why would it be unlawful? Why would it break God's law to pay Caesar his tax? That's, that's the question. You see, on, on the denarius, on the denarius that you paid, 
there was an inscription on both, there was a picture of Caesar on one side and an inscription on, either, on both sides. Underneath Tiberius's picture, there was, the, there was a, an inscription that said, son of the divine, son of God. And on the back, it said, high priest. So the way the Jews interpreted this was that because the picture was on the front, it was in violation of the second commandment that you should have no idols because he considered himself the divine and because it had the description son of the divine and high priest on the front and the back, it was in violation of the first commandment that you should have no gods before me. So they saw that coin as being in violation of both the first and the second commandments that you should have no gods before me and you should have no images of other gods. So the question was, is paying this tax idol worship, pagan worship? Now you have to understand, they loathe their Roman oppression. They loathe the fact that they had to pay uh, their own oppressors, that they believed that they were superior because the Romans, these were Gentiles. These were Gentiles. These were uncircumcised Gentiles, pagan worshipers that they believed they were superior to, better than. And here they were paying taxes to them. As a matter of fact, in just a few years prior to this, there was a, a zealot named, named Judas who had led an insurrection. And guess where, guess what, uh, where Judas was from? He was from Galilee. He was a Galilean. And he had led an insurrection against Rome, an uprising over what issue? Over the poll tax, because he believed the poll tax was, was a violation of the first and the second commandment. And so he had tried to lead an, uh, lead an uprising against Rome, which Rome had crashed down on. So here's why this is such a brilliant question. If, if Jesus says you should pay the tax, if Jesus says that you should pay the tax, that you should go to Rome and you should pay the tax as Rome demands, then they're gonna go to all of Israel and they're gonna say that Jesus does not take the law of God seriously and that Jesus does not love the people of God. And so they're gonna spread this among all of Israel, all of Judea, all of Galilee. They're gonna go to his fellow men, all of them. And they're gonna say, this rabbi does not love the law of God. This is a raging liberal. If he says that you shouldn't pay the tax, that you should uphold the, the first and the second commandment, then they're gonna go to Rome and they're gonna say, this is yet another zealot. This is another Galilean trying to lead an insurrection and they're gonna have Rome prosecuting to the full extent of the law. They've got him pinned. They've got him pinned. They've got him perfectly set up for an arrest. Perfectly set up. They can either arrest him under Jewish law, which Rome, unless it was a Roman issue, was happy to allow them to do. Or if he goes against Roman law, they had him perfectly set up for a Roman arrest and certainly an execution if he led an insurrection. But not only was it a perfectly crafted question, it was a perfectly crafted room. There's, a, there's two groups of people, it says. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, you're pretty familiar with the Pharisees probably by now, but you probably never heard of the Herodians a whole lot. The Herodians are a group of people that are very loyal to King Herod. 
very loyal to King Herod. They, they, they were all about having the, the reign of King Herod be as, be as influential and as powerful as, as it could be. Now, what, what, what Rome would do is they would allow people to self-govern themselves so long as they paid their taxes and they didn't revolt against Rome. And so as long as, he could, as Herod could rule over the Roman people and, and ensure that they paid their taxes on time and would not revolt against Rome, then the Romans were happy to let Herod reign over his people as much as he would, as much as he would let. You, you can remember, uh, or you can think to the crucifixion scene when Pilate and Herod have their going back and forth. You had the Roman government governor with, with, with King Herod, right? And so, so you had the Herodians and, and they're, they're wanting the tax paid. They're not wanting another revolt, right? Now what's interesting is that the Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other, hate each other. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees probably hate the Herodians more than they hate the Romans because the Herodians are Jewish people that are seen as traitors to their own people because they are allies with Rome because at least Romans are like outsiders that are against the Jewish people, but these are seen as Jewish people that are against Jewish people. Yet they are allies because they are allied in their, they're in an alliance in their hatred against Jesus. So you have them there together. And why are they there together? Because whatever the decision comes down, whatever Jesus decides, however he answers the question, the Herodians, if he decides not to pay the tax, if he says you don't have to pay the tax, they're gonna be quick to go to all of their Roman alliances and they can spread it quickly. They can get the news out fast to all of their Roman allies that Jesus says, don't pay the tax. And he can go down quickly. If he says, do pay the tax, then you have the Pharisees there and they can go and they can spread it to all of their Jewish friends and it can spread like wildfire quickly. It's a perfectly crafted question in a perfectly crafted room. And you would think, and they think, they think that Jesus is pinned down. They think that gee, they have Jesus exactly where they want him, man. They, they, you can imagine the hours and the brainstorming and the thinking, the, the brightest and the best, the Einsteins of their day. Teams have come together in a, in a council of brilliant minds to craft this room and to craft this question. And Jesus doesn't stammer and Jesus doesn't stutter, and Jesus doesn't wander, and Jesus doesn't tremble, and Jesus doesn't get nervous, and his eyes don't get wide, and Jesus doesn't get nervous. Like a surgeon with a scalpel, he cuts the mask off of this hypocritical monster with precision. And he says, you hypocrite, you hypocrites, why do you ask me? Why do you test me again? Why do you test me again? Bring me a coin. Bring me a denarius. And they quickly provide one. Now, we think, we think in our minds that Jesus gets this coin and it's just a cool object lesson, right? 
Why do we do object lessons? Because Jesus asked for the coin. Now, that's probably, we should do object lessons. Object lessons are fine. But why do we do object lessons? Because Jesus asked for the coin. But that coin is far more than an object lesson. That coin is going to serve as the strongest rebuke possible. You see, Jesus asks for the coin and they provide one quickly and Jesus holds it up. And he says, whose picture is on the coin? Whose picture's on the coin? And they say, we know whose picture's on the coin. That's the issue. Caesar's picture's on the coin. See what Jesus was having them do? Jesus was having them answer their own question. And at the very same time, Jesus was having them bring their own judgment down on their own heads. He was having, confronting them with their own hypocrisy. They were answering their own question by saying, who, who should they pay the tax to? Caesar. And at the very same time, he was revealing to them their own hypocrisy by showing them their own foolishness. You see, Rome knew. Rome knew that it was hard and that, that it was an ethical issue and a, and a, a religious issue for, Rome, for the Jewish people to have these coins and that they thought that them to be idols. And so you know what Rome allowed the Jews to do? Rome allowed the Jews to cast their own coins and have their own economic system so that they didn't have to carry around these denarius that they believed to be idols. And Jesus didn't have one, did he? Jesus didn't have one, but who did? All of the accusers did. The accusers had one. The accusers had the coins in their pocket. The accusers had the idols in their pockets. Here's what Jesus was saying. You say you hate Rome. You bring judgment down upon Rome. You condemn the sins of Rome. You loathe the oppression of Rome. Oh, but you love Rome. Look at the coins in your pocket. You are invested in Rome. You are invested in the economy of Rome. You love the roads of Rome. You love the justice of Rome. You want me arrested in Rome. You want me tried in Rome. You want the just, you want the police of Rome. You want me to be executed in Rome. You enjoy the affluence of Rome. You enjoy the luxuries of Rome. You enjoy all that Rome has. In fact, you hypocrites, you look a lot more like Romans than you do like worshipers. Who's in, your, who's in your pocket? You see, you have Caesar in your pocket, but you don't have God in your heart. You have Caesar in your pocket, but you have no passion for the Lord. You have Caesar in your pocket, but you have no eyes to see the truth. You hypocrites, can you not see? Can you not see? You enjoy all of Rome while you decry Rome. You want the affluence of Rome. You want the roads of Rome. You want the justice of Rome. You want the protection of Rome. But then when it comes to pay the taxes of Rome, 
You want to hide behind your self-righteous, religious hypocrisy. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus hates. And this is the kind of hypocrisy that will render the church of Jesus Christ powerless in the 21st century. And if I'm honest with you, this is the kind of hypocrisy I find insidious in my own life. This is the kind of hypocrisy I find creeping into my own heart and into my own family and into my own church. This is the kind of hypocrisy I find in my spare time. This is the, fine, this is the kind of hypocrisy I find creeping into my entertainment and creeping into my calendar and creeping into my budget. This is the kind of hypocrisy I find encroaching into my worship. This is the kind of hypocrisy I find creeping into my self-righteous judgment of my culture and yet the way that I justify all of the ways and all of the things and all the sins that I enjoy in my own heart and in my own life. I wrote it out like this. We live in Rome and we decry the sins of Rome, but the truth is that we love Rome. We measure our lives by the same status symbols of other Romans. We entertain ourselves with the same debauchery as the rest of Rome. We spend our money just like all of Rome. We even celebrate our Christian holidays like Romans. And if we're honest, our children are more Roman than they are Christian. In our homes, it is not uncomfortable for us to talk about math or science or batting averages or to memorize the Pledge of Allegiance, but it is uncomfortable to talk about faith, Jesus Christ, church attendance, or to memorize a single Bible verse. We are raising Romans. We want to believe that we're in the world and not of the world, but we're in the world and we're just like the world. And so the world is tired of hearing from us and about us as we tell them that we have a better way because to them, our way looks just like the Roman way, but with a few more rules and words attached. They're saying to us, look who's on your money. Look at what your life is built around. Brothers and sisters, we have no authority to call sinners out of Rome and into the kingdom of God when we look more like Caesar than we do like King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, are we Romans or are we Christians? Are we Americans or are we Christians? Are we citizens of heaven or citizens of earth? Who are we, brothers and sisters? Who are we? Who are we? If Jesus was here and we brought him all of our questions in all of our concerns, in all of our judgments, in all of our prayer requests, in all of our pleas, would Jesus ask us for our dollars and say, is this what's on your heart? Is this what's on your heart? Is this what's on your heart? Or are you living with a single tunnel vision passion for Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, where is our home? Where is our home? And who is our king? Who is our king? Who is our king?
ready for going to reach our world. For going to reach our world. We can't live like Caesar. We can't live like Congress. And we can't live like our president. We gotta live like Jesus. We gotta live like Jesus. We gotta look like Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that I, I am the chief of all sinners. I am the chief of all sinners. And it's out of this that Jesus gives us this profound and powerful principle. This profound and powerful principle that the New Testament apostles took and they applied in ways that were, were self-sacrificing and self-denying and, 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 and God-glorifying and, 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 and temporarily painful and, and eternally prospering. Let's read it together. Let's read it together. It flows out of this. He says in verse 20, 21, they said Caesar's, then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So I want you to think about what he's saying here. I want you to think about what he's saying here. He's saying, yes, I know that Caesar is wicked. I know that he is an uncircumcised Gentile. I know that he believes himself to be God. That is, I know that he is a blasphemer, that he is in violation of not just the, the second commandment, but the, the greatest commandment and every commandment after that. I know that, that he is a, a debased man. Pay your taxes to him. Because as Caesar, he has owed some things. As Caesar, he has owed some things. So render to Caesar, that, 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 the word render means give back, give back. So, so, so give back to Caesar. He, he has provided these coins, these are his coins. So give back to Caesar what is his. He has owed some things as Caesar, give back to him what is his. And give back to God what is his. So as, as Caesar, he has owed some things, but God, he has owed some things too. So, so, so Caesar as Caesar is the owner of some things and he is owed some things, but, but God, God, God is owner of some things and he is owed some things too. So, so, so look at your coin and whose image is on that? That's Caesar's image. So, so as Caesar, he is, he is the owner of that. He is owed that. Give that back to Caesar. He, he, he is right, that is rightfully his. And that's hard. And I know that's going to support some things that you don't support. Go, go give that back to him. He is Caesar, so, so, so honor him as Caesar. Be, be, be honoring to him, be, be deferential to him. Go honor Caesar as Caesar, he's, he's owed that. But that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Because we live in a country that, that funds things like, like Planned Parenthood with our tax dollars. And I'm telling you, like for me, that's hard. That's hard, it's difficult. It's painful. Think about Paul and Peter. In Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2 respectively, you know what they say? They say, honor the emperor. Do you know what the emperor did to both of those men? Ordered their executions. Ordered their executions. The exact same emperor that they write those words for. That's hard. 
So how? How do we do that? How, how can Paul write in Romans 13, pay your taxes and honor your emperor when that emperor is going to order his execution? How does Peter in 1 Peter write that? He's not just going to have Peter executed. He's going to have Peter's wife executed. He's going to have Peter's friends executed. How does Peter write to those men saying that suffering is the will of God? The very next chapter, how is he going to write knowing that much of that suffering is going to ha- come at the hands of the very emperor that he is saying you should honor? How? You know what he says? In, you know what Proverbs 8, 5 says? Or eight fifteen? You know what it says? Kings come by me. By, no, I'm sorry. By me, kings reign. By me, kings reign. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. And this is not an exhaustive teaching and there's, there's nuances to this. There, there comes a time, and much of the church suffered because there comes a time in which, which what you render unto God comes into conflict into what you render into king or what you render into any authority comes into conflict and what you have to render unto God. And many Christians have suffered because of that. But, so, so there's nuances to this. But here, here's, here's, how he, here, here's what Jesus is teaching. You, you render unto, God, unto Caesar what is Caesar's But then, then, then you render Caesar unto God. Because guess what? The coin, Caesar's image is on the coin. But guess whose image is on on Caesar? God's. God's. Because man, man is God's image bearer. Man is God's image bearer. So Caesar may own the coin, but God owns Caesar. So render the coin to Caesar, but then render Caesar to God. So here's how I play this out. Here's how, here, let, let's, let's put this in the real world. I pay my taxes to a Congress I don't trust, and to a president I don't trust, to a government I don't trust, and then I entrust all of that to the Lord. And then I entrust all of that to the Lord. I honor a supervisor that may have a character that is questionable. And I do what he says, the way that he says so much as it doesn't encroach upon my own integrity and my own ethics and my own, and my own, uh, my own character. And I do that because, not because it's easy and not because it's fun, but because I trust God and God's reputation is at stake in me. And I, and I honor a mom and a dad, not necessarily because they are great people or people of high character or of, of great integrity, but because I trust God. And in my obedience to my mom and my dad, even though he may spend all of my family's money on alcohol, or even though, because, even though my mom may go and sleep around with a hundred different men, and I know she is doing harm to my family, I will honor her and I will obey her so much as it doesn't encroach on my character because I am a representative of God Almighty and I will do all of those things in honor of God, entrusting it to God. I will obey my mom. I will render unto my authority. I will render unto my supervisor. I will render unto my emperor. I will render unto my president. I will render unto my Congress. I will render unto Caesar what is Caesar. And then I will render my mom, my supervisor, Caesar unto God. And I will do all of it saying, God, I am a living sacrifice unto you. May you be glorified in me, church. This isn't about taxes. This isn't about subordination. This is about worship. This is about worship. This isn't about what's easy. This is about worship. 
This is about denial and faith and hope and trust and confidence in God. In your life, it's gonna be required of you to submit to all kinds of authorities that you don't trust because they're sinners. You're gonna have to trust teachers. You're gonna have to submit to teachers and coaches, pastors. You're gonna have to submit to, to supervisors, to presidents of all different kinds. You're gonna have to submit to congresses of all different kinds. You're gonna have to submit to, to, to kings if you live in different lands or, or parliaments. You're gonna have to submit to, to this kind of employer or that kind of employer. You're gonna have to submit to all kinds of authorities, to all different kinds, but ultimately the question comes down to, will you submit to God? Will you honor God? You see, submission to another sinner requires radical faith, radical faith. Wife coming into new marriage, oh, radical faith, radical denial. Young kids, teenagers, sinful parents, man, you know their flaws better than they do. Radical faith, radical faith, radical submission, radical trust in the Lord. And so I come back and I ask you, where's your home? Where's your home? And where's your trust? Where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? If your home is not here and your treasure's over there, you can deny yourself now and you can have your treasure there. So render unto God all of your treasures here. Render to God all of your submission now. Render unto Caesar now and have your treasure there forever. Place your hope in God now. Place your hope in God forever. Place your submission in, subor in, in subordination into supervisors, into authorities. Honor Caesar now and bring God glory forever. Trust in God. Let's pray together.